we're coming to the uh, the climax of uh, Luke's book here in, uh, in chapter 24, and we're going to be talking about um, the resurrection. And there's a lot that can be said about the resurrection. Um, it has been said many times that Easter messages every year in churches all over the country, but um, it's very significant. We're here on a Sunday morning because of the resurrection. And I'm hoping that as we go through the text here in Luke, that God's going to make the, the fact of the resurrection more, cer- more certain, that you'll become more familiar with it, understand why it's important, and that ultimately you'll just be more excited about the fact that it happened. So let's just, let's open up uh, the word of prayer and then let's dive into Luke. Dear Lord, we thank you that you cared so much about us to send your son for him to pay the price for our sins. We thank you for your word. Just pray that you would, through your spirit, that you would show us this morning um, what, what we need to see from it and that you would just bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So, as we look here in uh, chapter 24, I'm going to go ahead and just read the passage, and then we'll go back to verse 1. It says, 24-1, But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was in Galilee? saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James. Also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. But the words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. So that's our text for this morning. It's an exciting passage. Um. But the beginning of it, in verse 1, it starts with, but on the first day of the week. I was talking about uh, David, this is is the most important but in all of history. It is the pivotal moment, and it's referring back to something that had happened before. It's referring back to the crucifixion. We know that when somebody has a sentence, I've said this before, has a sentence with a but in it, whatever comes after is more important than what came before. If I tell you I love you, but I think you're ugly, what are you going to walk away with? The fact that I think you're ugly, you don't care the fact that I said I love you. 
And so Luke makes a commentary here on that point. He chooses to put that word in there. It's the word de. It's saying, it's saying that, that what comes after is, is of greater weight than what, what comes before, what was preceding it. He could have just kept going in the narrative and said and, but he's, he's referring back to the death of Jesus. And last week, Tom talked about it, and he said one thing that's for certain is that Jesus was dead. We know that because he was crucified. And the soldiers made sure of it when they, they pierced his side. And Pilate made sure of it before he let Joseph of Arimathea take the body down from the cross. And it's at this point that I kind of want to pick up. Tom said he would leave a little bit for me to talk about, about his burial, and I want to go and talk, and I want to talk about that, because I think it gives us some perspective about what's going on in verse 1. We go back to 23. It says in verse 50, And a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council and a good and righteous man, he had not consented to their plan, in action, a man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was waiting for, for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down and wrapped it in linen cloth and laid him in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever lain. It was the preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee Followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And they returned and repaired spices and perfumes, and on that the Sabbath day they rested according to the commandment. So Joseph of Arimathea was uh, one of the most prominent members of the Sanhedrin. And he's a secret believer in Jesus, and uh, I think in a uh, I think it's in Mark, but I'm not positive. It tells us that he took courage. So it took a lot of courage for him to step forward and do this and identify himself with Jesus. And he and another man, John, John tells us Nicodemus went, and Nicodemus was probably the third richest man in all of Jerusalem at the time. He was a well digger. He was also the, the teacher of Israel. And uh, Nicodemus brought 100 pounds of spices with him. And Joseph went, and he bought a linen wrapping to wrap the body of Jesus in. And they go together, and they take Jesus' body down, and they bring it to the garden that's next to the place where he's crucified. And they, and I'm assuming they had people with them because they were rich, and the, the hundred pounds of spices, I'm sure Joseph didn't care themselves, but they prepare the body. And they wrap it in all the spices, and the Bible tells us that Joseph rolled the stone over the close of the tomb. And I go, I go into all these details for, for, for two reasons. One, uh, the first of which is an interesting thing that I came across, and I, and I think it's very true, is that the Lord, his humiliation ended on that cross. As we go through the passage this week, we're going to see that God very carefully orchestrated every event of his crucifixion and every piece of his burial and resurrection. And he's making a statement as he pulls these two rich, wealthy, prominent men 
down out of their positions in order to exalt the body of our Lord. His humiliation is over. These guys would end up paying a price for this. Nicodemus, there's a, there's a, uh, he went from being one of the richest men in Jerusalem to there's a, there's a midrash that says that the, uh, the Jewish leadership made an example out of him. And they, uh, they, told, they would tell a story to discourage people from believing in Jesus that his daughter, they were, there, was a, there was a rabbi walking on the road and his daughter is seen on the side of the road and she's digging through cow patties looking for seeds to eat. And he asked her, what are you doing? Isn't your father rich? And the point of the story is that they taught that the sins of the father were passed on to the children. And so... It was what Nicodemus did that brought his daughter into that position. And if you cared at all about your children and your family, what God, what God thought, you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't trust in Jesus. And that's just an example of God bringing these men providentially into the picture to give Jesus the burial that he deserved. But the second thing that is important to see is that the women saw all this. They saw that that uh, the, rich, the rich man had prepared the body. They saw that it was, it was probably more than adequately done. And they saw that the tomb was rolled away. And so the question is, on Sunday morning, why are they there? You know, I was always kind of under the pressure before I studied the passage that they're there to kind of complete what hadn't been done. Um. But I don't think that's the case. I think uh, in, in Jewish burial custom, the, the people would spend time with the body and they would spend time preparing the, the body. And the poor people, uh, would, no matter who you were, you would spend a lot of money on the funeral. You'd put valuables and money and spices and linen on the person and it's like out of a sense of grief, they, the, the poor people would want to make a statement saying, my person was as valuable to me as you rich people it was to you. Your person was to them. And so the women wanted, they come because they want to put, play their part in the burial of Jesus. And so they're there, and it says it was the first day of the week. This is the, important because the first day of the week, the, day, week, the days were num- numbered. After the Sabbath, it was the first, the second, and the third. The first day of the week would have been Sunday. And so it says, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices that they had prepared. And we know that it was the women, because it went back in the 23, it tells us the women that came down with Jesus from Galilee. And so the women were there, because they were grieving. They were very distraught over what happened to Jesus. Um, John tells us the story of, of Mary Magdalene coming to the tomb. And as you read the, the accounts, you kind of come to notice that Luke kind of gives a broad, overarching in, in some ways, the sentences cover a number of events. But 
In John's account, Mary, Mary Magdalene leaves with the other women, but she gets there first and she sees that, uh, that the stone has been rolled away. And she jumps to this conclusion that somebody has taken the body. And she is utterly and totally distraught. And she runs back and she tells John and Peter, somebody has taken the body of my Lord and I don't know what they've done with it. And the point I'm trying to make here is that where she was at mentally, and she was, Mary Magdalene, uh, during this time in Israel, one quarter of all women were named Mary. And in this story, there's a couple of Marys mentioned. And the Marys are identified by their male relative that they're associated with. But Mary Magdalene isn't associated to a Mary. To a male relative. She doesn't have a husband. There's no reason to, for us to believe that she had, um, that she had family. Um, we know from Scripture that she, she had, seven demons had been cast out of her. And tradition says that she, would, she was likely the woman that um, anointed Jesus' feet, that had been forgiven much and, and loved much, that she was a sinner. And she I believe that she was following Jesus day in and day out, just trying to, uh, trying to follow him. And she literally had given everything else up in her life. She had nothing else besides him. And when he died, all of her hope died. I don't think she had much hope or any hope before he came into her life. And then once he was there, he was everything to her. And once he died, it was like, it's like the parent, a single parent of a single child that pours everything into that, that relationship. And when that person dies, all you, all you have to cling with is that body. And so she's there and she just wants to be with that body because that's the only thing that she has left that connects her to the little bit of life that she once had. And so she's totally distraught. <laughs> And I think that this attitude is uh, probably, to some degree, um, the way the other women felt uh, as well, but maybe not to the same, same degree. And I think this is why, just as a side, that Jesus first appeared to Mary Magdalene. You know, in this world, how important you are, your status, what everybody else thinks, thinks of you, whether you're good-looking or bad-looking, whether you're gifted or not gifted, makes a big difference. But when it comes to after you die, and you go to heaven, and you're, you're going to go to see the Lord, none of that stuff is going to matter anymore. How important you were isn't going to matter. But how important Jesus was to you will matter. And that's why, and that's one of the reasons why I believe that he appeared to, to Mary Magdalene first. <clears throat> but all the other women are there, and they're headed, and they, and it says in verse 2, when they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Luke doesn't tell us the story of how the stone rolled away, but I want to I go ahead and share it with you. It says, in Matthew 27, 62 through 66, 
Now on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, they call him the deceiver, after three days I am to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead. And the last deception will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go and make it as secure as you know how. And he went and made the grave secure along with the guard. If there's... Two people in this, the story of, of the crucifixion of the resurrection that really got the importance of the resurrection, it was the Pharisees and Thomas. Because they saw well ahead of time that if he doesn't come out of that grave, nothing he ever says matters. But, so they have this guard set. And in, uh, he goes on in two through four, explains what happens next. It says, And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. In all four accounts, at no point do the women ever come in contact with these guards. And the reason why I'm belaboring this point is because the guards weren't there when the women got there. And the reason why the guards weren't there when the women got there is because the tomb was empty. When that, saint, when that angel came down, it had the same effect on them as angels have on all people. It scared them. It absolutely terrified them to where they couldn't move. But at some point... You know, they're, they're listening. They realize nothing's there. They take a peek. They don't see anything. They probably stand up just long enough to go look in that tomb and see that he's not in there and they're out of there. They're gone. They no longer have a job to do. In fact, no, no, no longer do they have a job to do. They have, they have to figure out what they're going to do about the fact that that tomb is empty and it was their job to guard it. So the reason why I just bring that up because it's a further proof of what what we're about to see next. So the women come up. We're told that you know they they didn't know who was going to move the, the the rock away, but they get there and it's been rolled away. And they go in and they uh, they entered and they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. So they're able to go in the tomb. That's one of the reasons why God rolled the, the stone away. He didn't need to roll that stone away so Jesus could get out. We know from the stories that in his resurrected, glorified body, that uh, Jesus was able to appear and disappear as he pleased. It says uh, in John 26, the doors having been shut, he stood in their midst. And so we kind of see this on and off through the... Uh, as recorded by the eyewitnesses. So he rolls away so they can go in, and they're standing there, and they're perplexed. And then they're trying to figure out what's, what's happened. It's not making any sense to them. And while they are there, it says, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. 
In Luke's account, the two men in dazzling clothing are clearly um, the angels. They're described as angels in the, in the other passages. Some of the other passages just speak of one. Others speak of two. And I just bring that up because as if you're going through and you're reading these, these passages and you're trying to piece them together, the... you start to see things and you say, huh, that isn't what it says over there. It says one. Or here it says these went, it was Mary Magdalene. And over here it says it was the women. And if you're just as a casual observer reading the Gospels and not really taking time to study it, it starts to make, maybe bring some questions up in your mind. And and as I was reading the, reading the scriptures, in the beginning it started to do that with me. And I prayed and I said, Lord, I know your word is true. As I study this, you know, change, change how I feel about this. And the conclusion that I came to is that, as everyone says, these stories never contradict each other. They always weave together in such a beautiful fashion um, that as you read it, you start to realize only God could take four different people in four different situations at four different times in four different with four different perspectives aiming at four different goals as far as their theme and weave it together and make it all add up and never contradict each other but only build each other's case and if you really take the time to study it that's what you're going to see but you know the the critics they don't really do that they don't they don't have a heart to see what it actually says. But these, these angels are there, and they have a message for the women. They say, it says, And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men to said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee? Saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. We know from uh, Hebrews and Acts and Colossians that when God, God gave us gave the law, he gave it through angels. And he is using angels here to give the people a piece of direct revelation. He is speaking. He wants to make a statement about the events that have happened. There's five things that happen in all four accounts. One, the death of Jesus. Two, the empty tomb. Three, the women are the first eyewitnesses. Four, the angels interpret the events. And lastly, the disciples didn't believe them. In all four accounts, the angels clearly tell them what happened. And it's my belief that God gave them pretty clear instructions about what he wanted them to say. And he said in different accounts, he, we see where he was talking to the women. There's multiple conversations. But what Luke chose to record is this sentence. And I think it's just... It's so, 
It's so neat. It's, he says, why do you seek the living among the dead? And at first it seems like kind of like a rebuke, like what are you doing here? And it's gentle, but I, uh, the more I studied it, the more I started to think about another question that was asked of another man in another garden. And that question God asked was, where are you? And the reason why he asked that question is because that man had gone off on a road. He'd gone down a path and he had gotten lost. He could never get back. And that man was lost. In fact, that man was dead. And he just didn't know it yet. And here God... And so we ask him the question. And the question is to help him to realize what happened to him. And here, God comes to these women and he asks them a question because he wants them to help realize something. He wants them to help realize that Jesus is alive. They just didn't know it yet. And it's a question that's designed to totally flip and turn, that, turn around their perspective. And so they hear what he has to say. They see that he is risen. They hear them say he is risen. And they remembered his words. I think that God chose the women to be the first witnesses for a number of reasons. There, uh, you know, a lot of people say, well, it makes the story seem less contrived. It makes the story more believable because in, Jew in the Jewish times, they, they weren't, uh, they weren't allowed to be witnesses in court and any Jewish person would have known this. And if you're writing a gospel, and that may be true. God might have chosen to do that for that purpose. But I think ultimately he did it because he knew they would believe. And he knew that they would be the messengers that he needed them to be. And they were the first because they were willing to be the last. They were stood in the background the whole time. And they were going there just to serve the, serve the body of Jesus. But it tells us that, uh, the, that Jesus actually chastised the, the disciples for their unbelieving heart for their hardness of heart, and the fact that they wouldn't believe these witnesses. And so God gave the women this honor of getting to be the first messengers about what happened at the tomb. And it says, And they remembered his words, and they returned from the tomb and reported these things to the leaven and all the rest. And then he goes on in verse 10 to say who they were. And he does, he takes some time and he says that there was Mary Magdalene. We already talked about who she was. She was healed. She was, uh, she had seven demons cast out of her. The Bible says that Joanna also was the recipient of one of God's, one of Jesus' healings. And Mary, the mother of James. There's a number of theories on who this lady was, but I wasn't actually able to pin it down. But Luke takes the time to mention who exactly these people were because 
He want, one of his purposes is for us to know the truth. And so these are the eyewitnesses of what actually happened at that tomb. And then it says in verse 11, but the word, these words appeared to them as nonsense and they would not believe them. So I'm guessing the, the, the disciples are sitting around and they're distraught. They're trying to figure out what, first of all, they're afraid, you know, is what, of what, what's going to happen to them next after what happened to Jesus. Their minds are totally clouded about the, after the events of the crucifixion and the resurrection. They're probably exhausted. Um, and they last seen the last time they seen the women, they were grieving. They were totally upset, probably, and now they come back and they're excited. They're almost manic, probably, with the story they come to tell them. And so they, this word here that they say, they, these words appear to them as nonsense. Um, it's like the women appeared to be delirious. They were confused. Like It's like if uh, you were super broke, and somebody and your kid runs in with a lottery ticket and says, "We just I found a winning lottery ticket." It just seems like the most bizarre, unbelievable thing you've ever heard of. And so they won't believe him. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb. I think Peter was sitting there, and maybe there was some kind of hope deep down inside himself that he himself just wasn't even willing to admit. But it all starts to sink in, and he says to himself, you know what, I'm going to get up, and I'm going to go see for myself. So he springs up, and John tells us in his gospel that, that he went with him, and he gets to the tomb first, and he goes in, and it, and it says in verse 12, and he saw that Peter saw the linen wrappings only and went away to his home marveling at what had happened. Peter see, goes to the tomb, he looks in, and everything is like maybe, he's starting to maybe start to put the pieces together. But he really doesn't understand, but he's amazed, he's astonished, and he's beginning to believe. John John tells us in his gospel that he believed when he saw the linen wrappings. And he gives, he gives a reason uh, why they hadn't believed before then. And the reason why um, they didn't believe is because they didn't understand the law and the prophets. That is in John verse 20. See, Jesus had told them beforehand what was going to happen. He told them in Luke 18, in verse 31, he says, Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day he will rise again. But the disciples understood none of these things, and the meaning of this statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. You see, 
God gives us two kinds of miracles. He gives us what, we could, what you would consider be, would be a normal miracle. It's when God breaks through what we understand to be the laws of time and space and physics, and he does something that is totally, we're not able to understand. Healing a blind person, healing a paralytic, making the sun go back in time. And that's one kind of miracle. And God surrounded this event with those kinds of miracles. He had the, the sun go dark. He rendered the veil. He sends the angels down. They, they remove the stone. There's all those kinds of miracles around the surrounding event. But those types of miracles, once they happen, unless you're an eyewitness of the event, the laws, the normal laws that we live and die by every day, they just close back in. And if you weren't there to see it, there's any number of explanations that you might be able to come up with that seem more probable than what God actually did. And so because God cares so much about us knowing the truth, he does another kind of miracle. And that miracle is the miracle of providence. Providence is when God in his omnipotent power, tells us beforehand that he's going to do something. And then despite, without manipulating a single person, a single attitude, in a world full of millions and billions of people, he makes his will come out exactly like he said he was going to. That was the purpose, the first purpose of Jesus telling the disciples. He didn't tell... God said he hid it from them. I don't know why he hid it from them. It might have been because he had a purpose and he didn't want them to try and get in the way of it. But we know that he hid it from them. But now those events are coming to their minds and that is even more convincing to them than the eyewitness testimony of the women. But what really convinced them is when they started to understand what the Old Testament said about Jesus, and that he must be resurrected. And so I want, I want to talk about some of those passages. It says in verse uh, 7, the angels point to this. They say that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men. Why must he be delivered into the hands of sinful men? And why must he be crucified on the third day, rise again? Because God said that he would. If God said it and it didn't happen, then we might as well throw this book away because it doesn't mean anything. So I want to take a few minutes and look at where the Old Testament predicted thousands of years before Jesus Christ came that Jesus would die and rise again. It's, it's, it's truly amazing. It's also amazing that the Old Testament is guarded, closely guarded by a people that don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is, that is for our benefit when you think about it. It's a testimony to the fact that it's true. They're maintaining these scriptures. And they are totally unbiased. They are biased against it. And yet, it's still there. They, they serve a testimony that they existed before the coming of Jesus. Anyways, so let's look at some of these, some of these scriptures. We can't, we can't talk about this subject without talking about Psalm 16. It says, Peter, in his sermon in Acts, and 
there is rarely a sermon that the, the apostles give that don't include testimony about the resurrection. It says, it says, therefore, in Psalm 16, verse 9, therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to go under, undergo decay. He goes on in that sermon to say, this isn't talking about David. David's tomb is right here with us. His bones are rotting, rotting right over there. It's not talking about him. It's talking about the Lord Jesus. In Psalm 22, God does it again. When he talks about the crucifixion, he says, I, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shard and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of the earth, for dogs have surrounded me, and a band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Is that not an incredible depiction of the crucifixion? In Isaiah 53, we heard this morning another portrayal of the crucifixion. And it's clear in that in that passage that Jesus dies. But it goes on to talk about the resurrection. In verse 12 it says, I'm going to back up to 11. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong. There, you can't divide the booty with the strong if you're still dead, if you're still in the grave. It's a, it's, a, it's a prophecy about the resurrection. In Zechariah 11, we get a very clear picture of all that, Jesus, all that Judas would do as he betrayed Jesus. It says, throw it to the potter, that magnificent price, which I was valued by them. So I took the 30 shekels of silver and threw them to the potter in the house of the Lord. It's not just the Psalms, the the Torah as well talks about the resurrection of Jesus. I never really understood the, the story of Cain and Abel until I thought of it about this perspective. What do you got? You've got Abel who's giving a good sacrifice to the Lord, and you've got Cain who's giving a sacrifice that is not acceptable. What do we have in G- with, with Jesus? We've got the Pharisees who are offering up a gospel of self-righteousness, and it's not acceptable to the Lord. And we've got Jesus that is offering the true gospel. And what do they do? They kill him for it. And then God raises up a son for Eve to take over the line. That Eventually, in that, in that son Seth, we see the resurrection. God is, God is painting a picture. And he even more clearly paints it when Abraham takes his son Isaac up onto the top of Mount Moriah. And God tells him to, to sacrifice his son, and God provides a ram. And Hebrews 11 tells us that Isaac represented the re- resurrected Christ because Abraham received him back. There's another picture. We see the, the resurrection in Leviticus 23, where the priest, every year after the Passover, on the day that Jesus was resurrected, would wave the grain offering. What was the grain offering? The grain offering was the first 
of the harvest to come to life in the springtime. Whenever, every year, everything dies. All the seeds die, and they come back to life. It's a picture of what Jesus would do. He would die, and he'd be resurrected, and he'd be the first to be resurrected among, from the dead. The first fruits. I'm sure there's more examples, but the example that Jesus used was the story of Jonah. We all know how Jonah was uh, in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And Jesus, in Matthew 12, 39, he tells the, uh, the leadership, he says, But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. What was the sign? I kind of had an idea as a kid that the sign was that Jesus kept, I mean, God kept Jonah alive while he was inside a fish. And I spent my whole childhood kind of thinking, man, you know, you're looking at pictures of whales and you're like looking at their mouth and you're like, man, what's their stomach like? Is there any oxygen in that stomach? There's no oxygen in that stomach. Jonah went down to the bottom of the ocean and he was wrapped in weeds. And if you read the account carefully, he prayed to God from Sheol. Jonah was dead. And the miracle wasn't that he kept him alive. The miracle was that he brought him back to life after he prayed. And that's, how it make, that's why it makes sense. And that's why Jesus used it as the sign. He, said, he tells the leadership, that's the last sign that I'm going to show you. And so we see over and over again in the scriptures where God we wove the entire story of the Old Testament is pointing to, to one person in one event. And so the question is, why does God do so much? Why does he take the time throughout all human history to make sure that we don't move, miss this, this thing that happens here, with the resurrection and the crucifixion. And to answer that question, I want to take a moment and go back to the cross. I know it's been talked, to, talked about thoroughly already and in, with great skill. But we know from the account that while Jesus was on the cross, from the hours of noon until three, there is a supernatural darkness covering the land. And what is happening during that time is that God has turned his back on the sun and Jesus is paying the price for our sins. The physical torment that he's experiencing, having nails driven through his ankles and his hands, having had all the tor flesh torn off his back, having to stand there on the cross, is just a picture, maybe something that tells us what was going on behind the scenes. You see, you and I were, were created to be in relationship with God. And everything that's wrong in our culture, all the perversion, all the brokenness, is a result of people suffering from a disconnect from their relationship with God and trying to fulfill it in the wrong way. So we are not totally unfamiliar with the suffering 
that is associated with being separated from God. However, we are merely created in the image of God. And we are finite beings. And Jesus, the Son, and the Father had spent all of eternity together. And they were infinite beings. And it is impossible, no matter how long we spend on it, to understand the terrible pain. Jesus, when Jesus was in the garden and he's sweating lots of drops of blood, he is, I can tell you, he's not worried about the crucifixion. He is worried about the price he's going to have to pay to be separated from his father and the crushing that he's going to have to go through, not as Jesus the man, but that is Jesus the God to pay the price for our sins. And so all that work, everything that he went through was done on that cross that day. It didn't happen later. He doesn't. It's all done on that cross. <clears throat> so at the end, he's, he makes a statement. It tells us in John, he says, I'm thirsty. Why did he say I'm thirsty? He says I'm thirsty, I think, because he's had, his body is in the process of shutting down. He's lost a lot of blood. He's been standing there for hours, pushing up on those nails so he can stand up and take gas of air so he can breathe. And I've seen a lot of people die. And when you're dying, your mouth dries out. And there's nothing you can do about it. And your tongue becomes fixed, kind of almost fixed in your mouth. And he wanted to say something. So he says, I thirst. And they hand him that the sour wine, and he, they put it, and he gets it in his mouth, and I believe he, you know, he gets it going so that he can, he wants to be able to say something. He has something that he wants to say. What, what is it that he said? He says, it is finished. See, he paid a price, paid the biggest price, more than we could ever imagine to be able to say something, to be able to say, it is finished, to say it's, it's paid in full. And without the resurrection, those words just fall flat. And the Father knew what the Son did. And so it says in Romans 1.4, He was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection according to the, to the Spirit of holiness. The point of the, the point of the resurrection, well, there may be many points, but the point I want to bring out today is that it proves true. God, it was God's statement to prove true about Jesus all the claims that he made about who he was and what he came to do. Without the resurrection, he was, he was just a rabbi that was crucified, and now his bones are somewhere, somewhere over there in Israel or the Middle East, and they're long forgotten about or dried up and crumbled into to dust, but they're gone, and this is all just a fanciful story. You know, the Jewish leaders denied the resurrection. They denied it on the very day that it happened. Those soldiers went, and they went to them, and they told them the story about how the angels had come and rolled the stone away, and what did they do? They, told, they paid him a lot of money. They paid him a large sum of money. 
And they said, go tell everyone that you were sleeping and the disciples came and stole that body. Now, despite the fact that you have to swallow the fact that somehow they were sleeping and still knew who stole the body, to some people, it sounds just a lot more believable that maybe, you know, somebody moved that body. The problem with that story is that it isn't true. It's not true. God, God tells us in his word that the truth is that he raised his son from the dead. And the truth is that he looked down through the corridors of time and he saw you sitting there and he cared about you. And so he sent his son to die for you. And the truth is that your sins are paid for and taken care of. And not only did he fulfill those first coming prophecies, he's going to fill his second coming prophecies. And so he's coming back for us one day, and we're all going to be resurrected. As I close, I want to turn to one more passage in the Old Testament that describes the resurrection. It's Hosea 6, if you want to turn there. says, come, let us, I think we're just going to read verses one through three. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. So let us not, let us know So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn, and he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. As I read this, I came to love it because not only does it describe the resurrection, it gives us what our response to the resurrection should be. When it says that he will revive us after two days, he will raise us up on the third day. He gives a description of what happened to Jesus Christ, and yet he applies it to the people. And if you, if you, read, the, if you read the word very long, you'll, you'll start to notice that we, in some way, were handcuffed to the Lord when it, we were attached to him. We were bonded to him. When he was crucified, we were crucified. And when he was raised up, we were raised up. And it says, uh, let, us, let, us know, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn. This going forth here, another, cinema, another way it can be expressed, if you just look the word up, it'll say the word rising. It literally says his rising is as certain as the dawn. That dawn, that morning, Jesus rose. Just the fact that he arose is as certain as that the sun came up today. And the fact that you, if you believe in him, if you believe in the gospel, that Jesus died 
for your sins, was crucified, and rose again, then your resurrection is as certain as the dawn, it's as certain as that sun coming up tomorrow. It's as certain as it came up today. And then he goes on to, t- to say, let us, when he says, let us, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. That's our job. Our job is to know the Lord. Philippians 3.10, Paul uses some of the same words. He says that I know, I'm just going to kind of jump in here. It's a little awkward, but you'll get the point in a second. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. He ties the idea of suffering to the idea of knowing the Lord. To know the Lord is to know what it was like to be Him. It's to pick up your cross daily. It's to really to know the Lord is to obey God. See, Jesus obeyed God perfectly. And now that He's been resurrected, our call is also to obey God. And that, that obedience does not come without a price. We talked about the price that Nicodemus paid when he lost everything in, as he identified himself with the Lord. Well, you may, you're not going to escape pain and suffering as you seek to walk with the Lord, even this week. But let it be an encouragement to you. you know, it says, and he will come to us like rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. I hope this week, you know, when you look outside, I was, I was outside yesterday, I was walking, I looked down, and there's, the ground was covered with leaves. There isn't a leaf on the tree. It's all dead out there. Everything is dead, you know? But the fact, your, your suffering will not be in vain. Your resurrection is coming, and just like that spring is coming, your spring is coming. My spring is coming. And let that be an encouragement to us to not give up, to continue to seek holiness, to continue to give our lives fully and totally and completely surrendered to Him, to let Him do with us what what He pleases. Let's pray.